You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning again. If we hadn't met, my name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church, and we're glad that you're here with us. Um, I've mentioned this before um, in the past, but today, actually, a year ago today, I was on my way home from India with a group of my friends um, from college, and we had just spent 10 days trekking through the Himalayan mountains. And you might be thinking, well, man, that sounds awesome, Um, and that could be one way for you to look at it, but it was by far the most difficult and the most physically demanding thing that I've ever done in my life. And, And you don't have to know much about trekking or mountain climbing to know that, that our path to the top that we took wasn't a straight shot, right? Um, when we started out, we, we started in this little mountain town and, and you could see the top of the mountain. And, and I remember thinking the night we camped before we kind of started on our journey, I remember thinking there is no way that we are gonna make it to the top of that bad boy on foot. Um, but as we got going, there were a couple of times where we could no longer see the top. So, I mean, I'm just kind of flying blind. You couldn't see the top of the mountain. I didn't know where we were gonna go. And the reason why was because the path we took, again, wasn't straight. It was full of all these switchbacks, right? We were going up and down and kind of these turns. And, and at one point, um, our back was actually to the top. And I, I remember thinking and, and talking to my buddies, I was like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we going this way? This, surely this is not the way, the best way for us to go up the mountain. But we weren't alone. We weren't just flying blind out there, a bunch of random Americans trying to figure their way through the Himalayas. We actually had a group of guides with us, um, and they had been to the top before. And so even though we couldn't see where we were going, and it seemed like we were going the wrong way, we had to trust that they knew what they were doing. We had to trust that they had been there before and that they knew what they were doing. And so along the way, as we're kind of making our way up, there'll be several... uh, a couple of days, we would stop for a break at this like lookout point where you could kind of see um, down. And I remember looking back down and you could see the town where we started. It was just like forever away. And from that vantage point, I remember thinking, oh, that's why we went that way. That's why we took the turns we did and that's why we took that path. And what those moments did for us was they began to solidify our faith in our guides. Because as we got back on the path and then and we're trying to get to the top and then things started going sideways and didn't go the way that we expected, we would remember those lookout moments and we would remember, man, we doubted those guys before, but they actually know what they're doing. They actually know where they're taking us. And so the reason why I share that with you this morning is because I think our text this morning, Genesis 40 and verse 41, is actually a lookout moment for Joseph, a lookout point moment where he can look back and see and have his faith solidified and go, oh, that's why my life has gone the way that it has. And so, um, just so you know, this morning, um, the sermon today is not gonna be typical. So it's not gonna be how we would normally maybe work through a passage of scripture and kind of, hey, here's three or four big points and maybe a poem if you're lucky, Um, but we're not gonna do that this morning. My hope this morning is simple. I I just wanna work our way through this text, and it's a lot. It's 80 verses, right? And that's a tall order, if you know me. No pun intended there. Um, But as as we work through this text, I just want you to see a handful of ways that Joseph was faithful, that despite the ups and downs, the circumstances of his life, he is faithful. And then toward the end, I wanna show you how I think he's able to do that so that you and I might be able to even sink our roots more deeply into faith in God. So for the last several weeks, we've been talking about a guy named Joseph, 
Um, and what we've seen so far is that his life has not been a straight path to the top. So his life has not been like, um, or, or like that trip for me in the Himalayas. It wasn't straight to the top. It was back and forth and ups and downs. And so in chapter 37, when we meet Joseph, we see that he is one of 12 brothers. And the Bible says that he is uh, his father's favorite son. And you're probably thinking, well, that's not true. We're not supposed to have favorites when our kids. Well, actually, chapter 37, verse 3 literally says that Israel, which is Joseph's father, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Like it actually says that. And I've only been a parent for like four years, but I don't think that's the way you're supposed to do it. Anyways, um, on top of that, one night, Joseph has this dream from God and he comes down from breakfast and he's all excited and all his brothers are sitting at the table and he's like, you guys will never believe it. I had this dream from God. He, he, he gave me this dream and he actually promised me that one day I will be exalted. And he says, you guys are gonna bow down to me. <laughs> and so, as you would expect, this does not help their relationship. And so, they come up with this plan and they decide to get rid of him and they end up selling him as a slave. And so, if you fast forward a few chapters, um, what we see is um, that Joseph ends up as a slave to a man named Potiphar in Egypt. And the Bible says, we talked about this a lot last week, the Bible says that even all through this, even as a slave in Egypt, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him and so as a result, Everything that Joseph did, he was successful in it. So much so that everything he was in charge of for Potiphar, his kind of slave master, flourished. So Potiphar sees this, he gives him more and more and more and more until eventually, as everything's flourishing under Joseph's charge, he is in charge of everything that Potiphar has. Um, and so he's on the top again. But that doesn't last long because he ends up being accused by Potiphar's wife of trying to make a move on her, right? And even though he's completely innocent, he is removed from his role as kind of chief of Potiphar's staff and he's thrown in prison. And this is the moment in his life where I'm sure he's thinking, this is not the right way. God has told me that I will be exalted and that my brothers are gonna bow down and that, that I'm gonna have this, like, this role, right? This is not the right way. He's thinking this, like why are we going back down? And he's actually worse off than he was before because before he was a slave, but now he's a criminal, or at least seen that way. But still the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph and he found favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So again, he hits rock bottom, but instead of giving up, instead of throwing in the towel, he stays faithful. And so now he's in prison and just like in Potiphar's house, everything he was in charge of, it flourishes. And by the end of chapter 39, even though Joseph is a prisoner, he is now in charge of the entire prison. So this is what I meant about Joseph's life being a bunch of ups and downs. And what's maybe even more important for us to grab onto is that none of the downs were Joseph's fault. It wasn't his fault that he was his daddy's favorite son, but still he sold into slavery. And it wasn't his fault that Potiphar's wife lied about him, but still he's thrown into prison. And yet somehow, instead of giving into bitterness, or giving up altogether, Joseph is faithful. In whatever situation he's put in, he's faithful. So let's look at this in chapter 40. Verse one says, sometime after this, after all the ups and downs in his life, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he, he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard, the same prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them and they continued for some time in custody. So Joseph is in charge of taking care of the prison and in verse two we're introduced to two guys, the chief cupbearer 
and the chief baker. And that might not seem like much, but these dudes weren't just kitchen staff, right? They were responsible for making sure that nothing happened to Pharaoh. So uh, apparently in this time, it would be common for uh, people to conspire against a king, to conspire against Pharaoh and to poison him or whatever and, and to try to kill him. And so as a result, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer were important roles, right? They were responsible for making sure that everything that Pharaoh ate or drank would not kill him. And so if you were the king, you would want trustworthy men in these roles. And verse two says that Pharaoh gets angry at these guys. So for whatever reason, he can't trust them anymore. He throws them into prison and that's all the details we have. So we don't know if they actually did try to kill him or what, but what we do know is that they're put into the same prison where Joseph is. And look at verse five. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, they each his own dream and each dream with his own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with them in his custody in the master's house, why are your faces so downcast today? So if you remember, Joseph was a guy who God spoke to through dreams. And not only that, Joseph was confident that if a dream actually were from God, then Joseph could ask God and God would uh, speak to him and he would be able to interpret what it meant. And so in that little passage, there's two things that I want you to see here. The first one is this. How easy would it have been for him to just see their sadness and then go about his business and not give it a second thought? Like, oh, you had a dream, huh? Well, good luck with that, because I had a dream one day too and it's not worked out too well, right? It would be very easy for him to just do that. And this is what we do when life doesn't go the way that we want. So this is what we should expect from Joseph. When life doesn't go the way we want, we become very myopic, right? We get so focused on how difficult our life and our circumstances are that we tend to miss the circumstances of the people around us. And so somehow, Joseph doesn't do that. He notices something about these guys and he says, why are your faces, in verse seven, why are your faces so downcast today? Which would make sense, like they're thrown in prison, there's this like maniacal, egotistical, like King Pharaoh who put them there and he did it because he thinks they conspired against him and, and he's assumed, they're assuming we're gonna die here. Of course they're gonna be sad, but Joseph noticed today there's a different type of sadness and he enters in with them. He doesn't just go about his business, but he tries to help, him and help them and he isn't so caught up in his own hurt that he is blind to the hurt of the people around him. And the second thing I want you to see is that Joseph has not lost his confidence in God. They tell him the reason why they're sad is because they had a dream. And then look at how he responds in verse eight. They said, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So he says, do not interpretations belong to God? He hasn't lost his confidence in God. So not only is he willing to, to enter in and to help them despite the difficulty of his circumstances, he still has faith that God hasn't forgotten them or forgotten him. And so what happens next is the cupbearer and the baker, they tell Joseph their dreams and then Joseph is gonna tell them what they mean. And here's the short version. It's gonna go really good for the cupbearer and it goes way bad for the baker. And so as Joseph is telling the cupbearer the good news that Pharaoh is gonna, in three days, he's gonna bring him out of the prison and he's going to exalt you or put you back in the role that you are in. As he's telling them this, in verse 15, or 14 rather, Joseph says this to him. Only remember me when it's well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. Put in a good word, right? And so get me out of this house, verse 15. For I was indeed stolen out of the land 
of the Hebrews. So he's talking about being sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he says, here also, I have done nothing that they should throw me into this pit. And so he's saying, hey, Potiphar's wife, she lied about me. I am completely innocent. So he says to the cupbearer, as he's, as he's telling him about this, hey, when you get out, remember me. Tell Pharaoh that I'm in here and that I haven't done anything wrong. And then look at verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So this word lifted up the head, it it sounds uh, like it's more ironic than it actually is. And really what he's saying is that when you have, uh, when you were to come in contact with Pharaoh, typically what you do is you'd bow down. And so if Pharaoh lifted your head, it's because he wanted to have a conversation with you. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph has interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so the cupbearer gets out of prison, he gets his job back, just like Joseph says, and as soon as that happens, Joseph is out of sight, out of mind, right? Verse 23 says it twice to draw your attention to it. He says he didn't remember him, he forgot him. And then I want you to see how chapter 41 starts after that. Like imagine the discouragement, I've been forgotten again. Verse, uh, chapter 41, verse one, after two whole years, right? We can't rush past this because Joseph is thinking, this is my chance. This is how I'm gonna get out of this prison. This is how God is gonna make all of this right. The cupbearer gets out and as he's leaving, he's going, I told you, right? I told you they were gonna come get you after three days. This is exactly what God said to me. He's going out, remember me. And of course the cupbearer is like, you know, I will. You know what I mean? Like they just dap, social distance, maybe the elbow. We don't know what happened, but they're heading out of there. And of course he's saying, I will never forget you. And the cupbearer gets out and I bet Joseph is eagerly waiting for his turn. My turn's coming. They're gonna send for me. Pharaoh is gonna send for me. You think there's gonna be today? Maybe it's tomorrow, right? And, and he thinks he's getting close to the top of the mountain, but the path switches again. And he's going back down and all of a sudden his back's to the top and he goes, this isn't the right way. For two years, he spends in prison, verse one says. So I don't know how you would respond, but I'd be ready to give up. Are you kidding doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how hard I try, my life never works out the way that I want it to. You know anybody like this? Maybe you're in this spot right now. You're jaded and you're bitter toward life because you got cheated out of your senior year or cheated out of some business deal or everyone around you is getting married and everyone around you is having kids and their life's going up. And here you are, you're still waiting, waiting for your day to come. Stuck in prison, it seems like. And you say, at some point, you go, forget it, man. This whole following Jesus thing is not gonna cut it. And if that's how the story went for Joseph, would you blame him? If that's how it went, would we blame him? He has every right to complain, but look what happens. After two whole years, verse one, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. So we got a weird dream, but it's about to get way weirder. Verse four, and then the ugly and the thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and then Pharaoh awoke. Okay, you ever had a dream, and you're just going along, or you're just, you're just there, you think it's life, and then it gets so, something happens, it gets so weird that you go, this ain't right, and you wake up, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's what just happened to Pharaoh. You wake up, you're like, where am I? Was that real? 
Eventually you're like, okay, it was a dream and you go back to sleep. Verse five, that's what happens. He fell asleep again and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, which just means that's the hot air. That's when I lived in Texas, when it, the wind feels like a blow dryer in your face, right? That's the, it scorches that grain, verse seven. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Verse eight, so in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and, and its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So he has this weird dream and he shrugs it off and he goes back to sleep and then he dreams pretty much the same thing again. Only the first time it was these seven emaciated cows that eat the seven plump cows and then they don't get any healthier somehow and then this time it's the seven scorched stalks of grain eat up the healthy grain and verse eight says that his spirit is troubled. So today's translators would say that Pharaoh was shook, right? He, he can't, can't get past this. He can't get it out of his head. He needs to know what this means. So he calls all the magicians and the wise men to him, all the men who could normally do this type of thing. He's not just like going, hey, get me somebody. What do y'all think this means? They're just at the local pub or whatever. He's, he's literally going, I want the experts. Bring me the guys who can do this. But for some reason, they can't figure it out. And now I know we're looking back on this and we know what it means. Um, but like, if you're an expert in this, this is not a complex dream. And so for some reason they can't figure it out. And I think what's happening here is that God is working. Joseph doesn't have a clue, but God is working. And as Joseph is in prison and he's waiting and he's disappointed and he's frustrated and he's saying, this is not the way, why is this happening? And he just can't get past it. As he's in that space, God is working. And so if you're there this morning, if you feel like, man, when's my day gonna come? You'd be encouraged, God's working. Look at verse nine. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, just popped into his mind. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And there was a young Hebrew there and he was with us. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams and he gave an interpretation to each of us in verse 13, as he interpreted it, so it came about. So I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. And so here's our cupbearer again, right? Just conveniently remembering what happens um, to Joseph. And so he kind of slow plays it a little bit. If you notice, he's not trying to get in trouble. He's a little bit scared of Pharaoh. And he's like, hey, hey, Pharaoh, remember the time that I did the bad thing and you threw me in prison? Like, I don't wanna bring that up again. I don't wanna remind you of that, but remember when that happened, but then you let me out and that was awesome. Well, before that, when I was in there, I had a dream. There was a guy there and he interpreted it. And so this is where things start to look up for Joseph. Verse 14, so Pharaoh sent, and he called Joseph, and they quickly, you gotta zoom in on that, man, when it's time for God to move and work in our lives, he does it. They quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So this is the chance that Joseph has been waiting for. He wakes up that morning after being in prison for years, and he's dirty, and his beard's all scraggly, and he probably hadn't had a bath in a while, and then, and then there he is a few hours later. He's cleaned up, he's shaven, he's got brand new clothes on, he's standing in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to him, I got a problem, and I've heard that you can help me. So three times at the end of verse 15, we see the word you. He says, I've heard it said of you, Joseph, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it, and then look at how he responds. Verse 16, it is not in me, he says. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
This phrase, it is not in me, in the Hebrew, it's one word and it, it basically means I can't do it. I can't do it, he says. This is not what you would expect him to say. This is his chance. Like if this, this interaction with Pharaoh doesn't go well, he's back to the pit, right? Back to the prison and he says, I can't do it. And then on top of that, he says, man, God is gonna give Pharaoh an answer. And this is the same thing he says to the baker and the cupbearer in prison, is it not? He says, do not interpretations belong to God? And so whether Joseph is talking to a criminal or a king, his character is consistent. He isn't more willing to serve Pharaoh than prisoners, even though Pharaoh can give him something in return. Jacob is, or Joseph rather, is faithful. And so he says to Pharaoh, I can't do it, but God will give you an answer. And this may not seem like much, but this is a dangerous sentence. God will give you an answer. What he's saying, Pharaoh wasn't just king of Egypt. He thought of himself as a god, right? They treated him like a god. And here's this Hebrew prisoner talking to him about his god. And he says, uh, I guess Pharaoh, I guess, is desperate because he wants to know these things. But again, this is a dangerous sentence. And then in verse 17 through 24, uh, we're just gonna skip over that because basically Pharaoh, again, he's desperate. He just tells Joseph, well, here was the dream. What do you think it means? And then look how he responds, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is he about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them uh, and the seven empty blighted ears by the east wind are also seven years, but they're years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to you what is he about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. So Joseph says to Pharaoh, the dreams are actually about the same thing. And here's what they mean. He says, God is speaking to you. Again, dangerous sentence. This is risky. He's saying God is speaking to you. And he's saying, uh, again, there, there is someone more powerful than you, Pharaoh. Yeah, you're king of Egypt, you're lord of Egypt, but this guy, this God is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords. And so despite the risk, Joseph is faithful and he says, in your dream, God is telling you what he's about to do. He says, it's about seven good years that are coming and then seven bad years that are coming of famine. And the seven good years are gonna be so good, but the seven bad years are gonna be so bad that you won't even remember what the good times were like. And what's interesting is that Joseph doesn't just interpret the dream, he actually um, says, and here's what you should do about it. Look at verse 33. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and a wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So the land may not perish through the famine. So one of the things that we need to remember as we're reading this is that this book was written to a group of people, right, Israelites, who were wandering in the wilderness. And they had spent the last several decades of their lives as slaves in Egypt, right? So they, they have a framework for kind of the category of, of what's being written here. And they had been miraculously delivered out from underneath an oppressive king of Egypt, an, an oppressive uh, pharaoh, a guy who consistently threatened them and he went back on his word to them. But 
With that context in mind of, of how they think about Egypt and how they think about Pharaoh, what do you think they would have been thinking when Joseph, a Hebrew slave, says, hey, here's what I think you should do. I, I have a plan, right? You should pick a wise and discerning man. They're thinking Pharaoh's gonna say, I am the wise and discerning man back to prison, right? That's what they would expect. But what happens is almost the complete opposite. Again, God is working. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Man, what a day for Joseph, right? I mean, he woke up a prisoner and he goes to sleep that night as second in command of the whole country. And this is what I meant earlier about this being one of those lookout moments for Joseph. Because my guess is at some point that day, Joseph, when things got quiet and slowed down, and he thought back in his life, all the ups and downs, all the back and forth and the hardship, and, he, and now he goes, I can see what God was doing. I can see now what God was doing. If God never, um, if I never was sold by my brothers into slavery, then I would still today be a shepherd in Canaan. If Potiphar's wife didn't lie about him, then he would still be serving the captain of the guard, right? If the cupbearer didn't forget him in prison for two years, then Joseph would have not been there to interpret Pharaoh's dream. This is one of those lookout moments for Joseph, but it was also the mountaintop because now he, he had more wealth and more power and more authority than he could have ever dreamed. But he could see now this whole time he had a guide who could be trusted. All along the way, God is working. When he's in the pit, when he's in the prison, God's at work. All along the way, he had a guide who could be trusted and Joseph was faithful day after day, year after year. But he wasn't just faithful in the difficult times. Look at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. So earlier in the chapter, um, when Joseph is being exalted by Pharaoh to this to this powerful role, he gives Joseph a wife, an Egyptian princess, and her name is Asenath, and she bears him two sons. Uh, verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. And the name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he has these two sons with this Egyptian princess wife, and custom uh, of the day there would be for the, for the wife to name the sons, but that's not what happens here. And we know that because Joseph gives his boys Hebrew names. Manasseh for the firstborn, which means God has made me forget. And what this shows us is that Joseph believes that his rise to power in Egypt was not because of his strategy or his planning or his courage or his willingness to interpret the dream. It was because of God working and fulfilling the dream that he gave to Joseph all those years before. And he names his secondborn Ephraim which means God has made me fruitful. And this shows us that jo uh, Joseph isn't taking credit for his success in Egypt. He believes that God was the one working in his life. And to me, what may be even more impressive about Joseph's faithfulness is that not only does he trust God in prison, but he trusts him in the palace too. Oftentimes when things go well, we think we did that, right? We get a raise, we get a promotion, it's because we worked hard. 
things go well in our life, it's because of all the things that we did in the late nights and the early mornings and our faithfulness and all of our work. When things go well, we think we did that. But things go bad, it's never our fault. We blame someone else or we want to blame God. And Joseph does neither of those things. He trusts God in prison and he trusts him in the palace. And so again, here we are, almost 30 minutes in, you're like, what's the point? How does he do it? How does he faithful in the prison and faithful in the palace? And here's the answer. It's really simple. I think it's, as you read the story of Joseph, I think it's because of his confidence in what God has said. I think Joseph is able to be faithful in the pit and faithful in the palace because he is confident in God's word to him. He believes and he clings to the word of God. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. And when I read this, I think of Joseph. His life didn't wither. And his life was fruitful because he was like a tree planted by streams of water. And maybe you'll say, well, of course he did, right? God spoke to him through dreams. Of course he was planted by streams of water and was confident in in what God has said. He had a dream. If God spoke to me like that, I'd be more faithful too. Well, the reality is we have something far better than Joseph ever had. Joseph had a dream from God and he spent 13 years waiting for it to come to pass. You and I have direct access to the word of God. 24-7, anytime you need to hear from God, you have his perfect, inerrant word in your hands, in your pocket, on your phone, always available to you. Joseph was faithful because of his confidence in what God has said. So I just wanna ask you this morning, to be honest with yourself, to be honest with God, where is your confidence this morning? What is it that brings you confidence and makes you feel like you matter? Maybe you're on one of those lookout moments of your life and right now you're in that space by God's grace and you can look back and you can see, oh, that's what's happening and that's why that happened and that's what God was doing in my life then. Or maybe you're on a place on the path where you can only see a few feet ahead. And either way, do you trust that you have a God who knows what he's doing? Are you a tree planted by the stream of God's word or are you withering? A lot of the folks that I talk to We'll say something like this, if we begin to talk about like just a discipline of, of daily Bible reading or even just hearing from God. And what they'll say is something along the lines of, and there was a time when I was really serious about learning and growing and hearing from God in the word, but for whatever reason, just kind of drifted. That life just got in the way. And I know, man, I should read my Bible more, but I just hadn't got around to it. And I think what may be true for most of us if not many of us, the, the only time that we spend with the Bible open, again, with God speaking, um, is on Sunday morning. And, and don't get me wrong, man, if that's true, I am so thankful that you join us on Sunday morning. I'm so thankful. I pray, literally pray every weekend that as we gather and as we open the Bible that you actually would hear from God. But if that's you, if that's the only time, or even you, you would even say, yeah, I've drifted. I used to be more passionate, more serious about hearing from God and learning from God. If that's you, I want you to see something else in Genesis 41. Look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph 
has said. Again, his confidence in the word of God. There was famine in all the lands. And when all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Well, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and what he says to you do. So because of Joseph's faithfulness and his confidence in what God has said, he launches this massive building project, right? Seven years long, multiple cities, like countrywide building project, and they're storing up all this grain. And so when the bad years come, the Bible says there was a famine in all the land. And so we can't sugarcoat this and just read this as like a story. These are real people. Famine in all the land, you know what it meant? That people were dying of starvation. People were literally kids dying. It didn't matter how much money you had, you couldn't buy food because you can't find it. It's like TP right now, like you can't find it, right? But in verse 54, it says that in Egypt, there was bread. And so what do people do? What would you do? Like if you need something to live, like I have to have it or I will die, I have to have it or my family will die, what would you do? You'd go to Egypt. Because if you didn't, your family would die. And verse 57 says, not only did all of Egypt come to Joseph for bread, but the whole earth came to him. Again, why? Because the bread meant life and they wanted to live. So maybe you see where I'm going here. But the Bible is painting a picture of Joseph. And he's saying he was sold by his brothers and he was thrown into prison for sins he didn't commit. And it seemed like this dude would be forgotten by anyone who could save him. But through it all, he was faithful. And because of his obedience and his faith in what God has said, he is now able to provide life for anyone who comes to him. And in John 6, Jesus is having this conversation with his followers and they're questioning whether or not he is who he says he is. And basically, to bring it into this sermon, they're questioning like, is this dude a God worth following? That's what they're asking. Verse 30, so they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Are you worth following? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so I love this. He's having this conversation, and they're questioning, and Jesus knows it. They're saying, are you worth following? They, they full out ask him. And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses. You're talking about the sign that that happened. It wasn't Moses who provided bread for your fathers in the wilderness. It was my father, and you know what? I was right there with him. And so we remember that the book of Genesis this, this group of people that were wandering in the wilderness, the same group of people that, that we're talking about here, right? And so who knows, maybe in John 6, Jesus' disciples, is, they're thinking about Genesis 41. And they're going, oh yeah, just like God the Father provided uh, in the wilderness manna every single day, God provided for all the nations through Joseph in Egypt. And they're putting all this together and Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never hunger. And if you believe in me, you will never thirst. And Jesus' point here, and you gotta get this, is he is the greater Joseph. That through his obedience, he alone can provide us the life that we want, only him. So what do we do? Well, just like the Egyptians in Genesis 41, we, we cry out, right? And, we, and they cried out to Pharaoh, verse 55, for bread. 
Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, you go to Joseph and what he says to you do. Go to Joseph and what he says to you do. The same thing is true for us. And if we're famished, if we're tired and hungry, if our barns are empty, which means that your ability to store up enough life or to create the life you want and to carve it out, your ability to do that apart from him, if your barn is empty, it's not working without him, we go to the greater Joseph, the one who says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me shall never hunger. And I love how they respond. John 6, they say, sir, give us this bread always. We want it all the time. So I have two little boys, and one's two and one's four, and they ask for food all day long. I mean, all day long, right? And so as I was reading this, I I thought about them, and I said, man, that should be my posture in going to Jesus. This should be our posture in going to Jesus. Like my boys asking for snacks when they just finished breakfast, right? Give me this bread all day long. So we don't just come to him once, and then get filled up and then go about our life without him and we don't just come and open it on Sunday and there's hope that's enough but we continually come to him moment by moment, day by day because he is the bread of life. He doesn't just have it. Joseph had bread. Jesus doesn't just have it, he is it in his person and so we commune with him and we have relationship with him and we do it through the word. May we be people with, with, with our Bibles open. The difference between us and the folks in Genesis 41 is that they came as patrons. They came as purchasers. Verse 57 says, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain, but we don't come as customers. We come empty-handed. We don't come and empty our bags and say, look at all the good things I've done. How much life will that buy me today? We come empty-handed as beggars, broken, starving for what only he could give us with no way to buy it and no way to ever possibly pay him back. And the Bible says if that's how we come, he will never turn us away. Look at verse 49 of chapter 41. It says, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. The way the Bible describes this is the way the Bible describes God's grace toward us in Ephesians 2, verse seven. It's like this grain, Paul says, in the coming ages. This is an age that we live in right now. Every human who's ever lived is an age. In the coming ages, millennia, he, God, might show us his immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. God's grace is like this grain, it's immeasurable. And so when we cry out for life, when we've realized that life is available to us in no other place and no other person, we go to Jesus and we do what he says. When life feels like we're waiting in a prison, right? When the path that we're on feels like, man, I'm going down, but I should be going up. When we're confused and tired and angry and hurting, we cry out When we go to Jesus. We do what he says. And the only way we'll know what he says is if we are people of the book, people who are, are, are planted by streams of water, who delight and meditate on his law. We go to Jesus and do what he says. And likewise, if life puts you on top, there's no guarantee of that, but if life puts you on top and you find yourself in the palace, you remember, I don't deserve any of this. 
I came empty-handed. And you alone can provide for me the bread of life, true joy and satisfaction in the world. And so we go to Jesus in the prison and we go to Jesus in the palace and we do what he says. Let me pray for us and let's go to him now. Father, you're good. And we can say that over and over and over again and it still wouldn't be enough. So I pray this morning for our church, for the people who are watching on live stream and ask God that you would speak to us. Would you convince us that there is no other bread that will satisfy? Help us, God, to trust you in this moment, in every moment in between. Will you make us people of the word? Will we be like Joseph, found faithful, not because of who we are and what we do, but because we are confident in our guide? Help us, God. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.